Grab your Bibles with me, turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation, an exciting and fascinating study. Chapter 1, we're going to pick up at verse 4, so you can put your finger there. It's only our second time in the book of Revelation, uh, starting here and still in chapter 1. But put your finger there, I'll eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, as we open the scriptures, we always pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts. Father, we cannot understand uh, spiritual truth unless the spiritual teacher, the Holy Spirit, uh, enlighten our hearts and open our eyes so that we might understand what we're hearing and reading and put these truths into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a little bit of a ring in there, so... The late great pastor and Bible teacher, Ray Steadman, said, the book of Revelation is the scariest book in the Bible, but it's also comforting, encouraging, and the most fascinating one as well. That's true. The apocalypse, as we call it, and by the way, that word has been hijacked by the world and movies and books, the word apocalypse from the Greek apocalypsis simply means the unveiling, as we talked about last week. It does not mean the chaos and Armageddon kind of thing at the end of the world, though it's come to mean that. But the apocalypse, the revelation of how the world ends in all this graphic detail is indeed a scary thing. Uh, the world ends in this intense imagery, you know, the four ominous uh, horsemen that ride out in conquest on white and red and black and pale horses. And then John's describing, as he, as he did, something like flaming mountains falling into the sea, all kinds of cataclysmic changes in the earth and the heavens. No believer, really, if you have faith and you truly believe that the Lord is showing you, revealing you advanced history, that these things are going to come to pass as if they've already happened and God is giving you a, a, a window into the future. No believer with faith can read these words of this revelation uh, without being a bit unnerved. But we are learning here in the opening verses of chapter 1, that's the very last thing God wants from his people. The purpose of the revelation is not to make us afraid, but to put us at ease. The whole point is to show you and to me, God wins, evil loses, the devil is bound, good triumphs, Jesus reigns as king, and the Lord's people overcome. Now, it makes sense to me that the very first vision of all the visions is a vision of our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his radiant splendor. Because the book is not about the end of the world, it's about the author of life. So we're therefore free to serve the Lord. Before the 14 chapters of judgment fall, we see Christ 
our God is calling the shots and our loving Savior is in control. So we can do what Paul tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, we therefore are free to serve the Lord and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath, a reference to the seven-year period of great tribulation, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Wrath. And so last week we finished the introduction to the book. If you missed it, it's online on our website or on iTunes. And we took a look at the prologue, verses 1 through 3. Uh, we saw last week that the things revealed in the book were to soon take place. That the next calendar event, according to the Bible, would be the Lord coming for the church, which is what we call the rapture. Of course, the rapture comes from a Greek word, harpazo, which means to be caught up or snatched away. And where we get the word rapture is from the Latin word raptus, and it just became rapture. And so while the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible, the, the word for it, caught up, does. And so uh, that is the next calendar event prophetically given as we're waiting to be taken away so that the judgment of God comes upon the world. He says, if you take these words that you're studying to heart, you will have blessing because as a result, your life will be changed if you really believe those words. He's showing you how the end of the world as we know it happens and the beginning of eternity with Christ reigning on a throne forever and ever. If you take those words to heart every day, it affects the way you live your life. And that's where we're blessed. You'll be more disciplined in your living. You'll make wise choices like we spoke about last week. Spiritual priorities, renewed zeal and love for God, a passion for holiness. I mean, in light of the way the world will be destroyed and the glory of God revealed, what am I doing wasting my life uh, involved in any kind of sin for any reason? Not to mention the compassion for the lost to be increased in our hearts. So living with an eye toward the end is what the great value of studying the book of Revelation is. It helps you to keep your eye on the end so that you can make wise choices in the now. Now, uh, we are going to pick up now at verse 4, but we're only going to get through verse 8 this morning. And now I'm, I want to tell you why, because it's very important. When, and when we read the text together, I think you'll agree that there's a lot of meat on that barbecue that we need, <laughs> we need to talk about some of those things because God is trying to say something to his church before he reveals chapter 6 through 19. He's talking to us, getting us ready for a vision of the end of the world. And so he's going to give us peace and grace, and he's going to talk about himself in terms that we've never heard before. And so uh, the point of spending time this morning and kind of milking this passage for everything it has is to prepare our hearts for what's to come, that we might have peace and security and not avoid these chapters, 
but to dive into them with confidence and boldness because of the strength of our God and the love that he has for all of us as his dearly loved children. That will be the point of these four verses. So let's dive in, starting at verse 4. The letter kind of officially starts. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, see what I mean? (laughs) You know, I just can't speed through that and feel good about myself as a pastor. (laughs) I have to kind of explain this as we go because it's so important. So let's walk through these important verses. And as you can see, it's it's really soul-stirring and very moving to me as a pastor to realize this is going to happen and it could very happen uh, before the end of this service are catching away. And so it's just a, a very intriguing and edifying study for me. Uh, let's walk through these verses, like I said, uh, invaluable foundation here. And uh, you'll notice three ideas, the greeting from God, the praise to Jesus, and the announcement of his coming. So we start with the greeting, and it begins with the salutation. Um, Dear seven churches of Asia. So it's very interesting that the revelation begins as a letter to seven local congregations. These seven churches are the immediate audience for this unveiling of the end of the world and Christ's coming in judgment. Very interesting to me that it should start with uh, uh, being addressed to seven local congregations. And they're named, they're coming up, and so I'll explain that when it comes up in the text. But he might as well be saying, uh, to the seven Calvary chapels in Northern California, and then list them, the rock, the refuge, Calvary Chapel Petaluma. That's exactly what's happening here. Let me show you on the overhead here. Those seven churches were local congregations. I have had the privilege of going to all seven of those sites. The thing about the Bible is that when the Bible names a city, you can actually find it somewhere. Now, that isn't true about all kinds of spiritual revelations. You cannot, for example, find the the cities in the Book of Mormon. You cannot find them. There might be a reason that you cannot find them. (laughs) But here, with these seven churches, 
They are, this is modern day, this landmass. Look at this. This is all Turkey, modern day Turkey. And so you have all of these churches here, and he's saying, dear Calvary Chapel Pergamos, dear Calvary Chapel, all right, okay. It doesn't need to be Calvary Chapel, but I'm trying to contextualize it for it so it seems like, wow, he's writing to churches, actual people sitting in, in pews there. Well, they probably didn't sit in pews yet, but here we go down my bunny trail. Thank you for that slide. Let's continue on. So the Lord is revealing and dictating. There's an angel involved in the mix, and John is transcribing what he's hearing and seeing to these churches. And then we're going to get to meet each one because uh, the Lord addresses them and talks to them about their strengths and weaknesses. Now you might be asking, why these seven? There were more than seven churches in the day. But the Lord, now starting with the number seven, uh, seven is a big number in the book of Revelation. It means fullness, the completeness of God's plan. And so now you're going to see the number seven mentioned about 50 times. This is the first in the series. And, and what, he's, what commentators say is, is that the Lord picked seven congregations that represent all churches throughout the church age from the day of Pentecost when the church began until the coming of the Lord. That in these seven churches, the perfect picture, seven, of the strengths and the weaknesses of all of God's people all through the ages. And so he's going to address them one by one. And in doing so, he's addressing uh, us because we are part of the church. And so there'll be things that we really identify with and that we're really challenged by and um, valuable insights that way. So as the Lord addresses these strengths and weaknesses, we'll really get a lot of value out of it because we'll know what he wants in a church. We'll see what makes a church healthy and productive from God's point of view. And so here comes a really extremely significant greeting. Don't let it pass you by. Grace and peace from God. Now, interesting, in a book primarily about judgment, God offers first his grace Grace is unmerited favor. That grace has been described by the letters G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, and that we are saved through this grace. It's not by works, lest any man boast, but it's a gift of God through faith and faith alone. Peace speaks of our experience, while grace speaks of our standing. So interesting, in a book primarily about bloodshed, war, chaos, and the noise of strife, he extends peace. So he starts the whole book with grace and peace. The word for peace, Irene, where we get the word, the name, Irene, it means security, safety, prosperity, and overall sense of well-being. So here's what he's saying right from the jump. I've made you right with me. I've given you my favor. Therefore, you can enjoy peace. Now we'll proceed to know 
the attributes of the God who is giving you this grace and this peace. So he goes on to describe God as the source of this blessing, but he's not going to have a neat description of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, but he's going to describe clearly three persons, one God, the Trinity, discipling men of all nations, in the, baptizing them in the name, one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we're going to meet this God now. So grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. God the Father, the Eternal One. So you remember when Moses was called to meet Yahweh and he went up on the mountain and at Exodus chapter 3, uh, Moses asked for a name, a description. Yes, I will go and I will tell the Israelites you have sent me, but, but what's your name so I can say who you are to them? And the Lord just said, you know, in a very uh, hard to explain expression, he says, I am who I am. And you'll notice in your Bibles a little editorial note that it could mean I also, I will be who I will be. Or it can also mean, I was who I have been. I was who I have been. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. So it's, it's difficult for God to explain himself to people. What's your name? Well, uh, <laughs> I am. I am. That's just, uh, what can I say except that I was who I was, and I am who I am, and I will always be who I will be. And uh, that's an amazing thing. What The flame. It's eternal. It doesn't burn up. It never stops. It, he's timeless. He's self-sustaining. He's, he's, in our, uh, he's in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future. But he's ruling there as well. And so uh, this grace and this peace comes from God the Father, the eternal one. Now, grace and peace from the seven spirits before the throne. Well, this is a unique reference to the Holy Spirit. Again, just seven. Again, the fullness of the Spirit in the sevenfold attribute, attributes of who the Holy Spirit is. Now, the reason why commentators say that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit is because, A, the placement. It, it comes between God the Father and God the Son. And, B, it is the one who administers grace and peace. So if it were seven spirits before the throne, seven angelic beings, we, they do not send us grace and peace, not in the mix of God the Father and God the Son. And so therefore, we pretty much know that this is a, um, a mystical way of referring to God the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, commentators also say that uh, it may be a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where there's a sevenfold attribute uh, given of the Spirit. And I can read it to you. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, number one. The Spirit of wisdom, number two. And of understanding, three. The Spirit of counsel, four. And of power, five. The Spirit of knowledge, six and of the fear of the Lord, seven, but that's all talking about one spirit, 
And so that perhaps is the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace now from Jesus Christ, still in verse 5. Now more is said about Jesus since he is the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his being. For us, it all comes down to Jesus. He is the, the radiance of God's glory, as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 calls him. And so Jesus Christ is now going to be uh, described in three ways. Number one, he says, in grace and peace from just Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. What does that mean? The Greek word for witness is martus, where we get the word martyr. Now, interesting that it, it used to just mean to witness, but in English, it has taken on martyr, takes on the meaning of witnessing unto death, because that's throughout the ages where witnesses of Christ have ended up. And so uh, that is why he is called the faithful martyr, because he witnessed to the truth. He came from heaven. I came down from heaven to tell you the truth. That's what he told Pilate. Pilate said in John 18, so you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, comma, to testify to the truth. In other words, of saying, to tell you guys the truth. That is why I came down from heaven to let everybody know there's a God in heaven who loves you. There's a devil on the loose who hates you. There's a way to be saved and live forever, and I am that way. There's a right way to live. For blessing, there's a wrong way to live. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Broad and wide is the road to destruction, and many go that way. He came to tell us the truth about who he is, what life is all about, how to get to heaven, how to avoid hell, how to be blessed, and who we are. He came as a faithful witness. Why does John call him that here? He's saying the words you're about to see, the revelation you're about to, to uh, embrace, they're credible words. He's the dependable truth teller. That's what it means. And then, um, of course, he told the truth unto death, but he didn't stay dead. So John adds he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you're asking that, because I'm here to answer that. Who's the first person who was ever raised from the dead without having to die again? It doesn't count. You were, you were kind of raised from the dead if you got to go that way again. Poor Lazarus. I mean, really, when he started to get sick again, he's like, not this again. <laughs> who... Who was ever raised from the dead? And that was it. The, Jesus Christ. He, in this sense, he's the firstborn from the dead, and all of us follow our older brother. Great comment from a commentator. He leads us through the grave. We follow him from our last breath and heartbeat in this life right into the next breath in eternity. Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death and emerged into life, and we follow 
in the same manner. You know, some of you know an unfortunate, sad event that happened this week. We have a friend who's in ministry, who's a pastor of a church in American Canyon. It's a year old. He's from Calvary Chapel, uh, Napa, and he has led worship here, he and his wife. He filled in for Amanda once. He's a good friend. Josh and him are very close friends. Well, 36 years old, four little kids. Uh, Last week he was playing basketball, and he had a heart attack. And he went home to be with the Lord. God is at work, and all kinds of um, redemptive things are, are going on right now. But all that to say, the biggest problem of all is, is, has been solved because he has an older brother, the firstborn, who made a way for him. And when Petey's heart stopped, he was ushered into life, past death, transcending death, and into the presence of life because he's following the firstborn. We follow as siblings to Jesus. He is called our older brother. He's also called our father. But he's, in this sense, he's the one who said, I'll taste death, I'll conquer death, I'll open the door for you, and I will rise. I'm the first in this. You follow behind. And Petey did. He's there. He's with the Lord because he followed the firstborn from the dead. And then grace and peace from Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, while Jesus witnessed his faithful witness and the Lord's resurrection, making a way in, uh, for, uh, from death into life was past. Now the future, grace and peace from Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Before the book of Revelation is over, Jesus will uh, have dominion over every earthly king. At the present time, Jesus rules a kingdom, but it is a kingdom that's not yet of this world. So, somebody's idea to put a placard above the cross of Christ, the king, the Jews. And I can imagine people thinking, what a pathetic king. Lifeless, bruised, broken body, gasping for air. Really, King Jesus. What they don't realize is there was an invisible war going on that the king was doing a powerful work. He was disarming principalities, Colossians chapter 2 says. He was dying and paying for not only our sins, but the sins of the entire world. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, the sins of the whole world. He was, he was destroying the work of the devil, freeing us from all of our sins, washing us clean, giving us eternal life, doing the work of a warrior king. Now, he says, someday, at the end of seven-year period of tribulation, Jesus will be enthroned as the rightful king in a visible way. The beast, the Antichrist, he will be the false king, and he will thrust out his puny chest, and he will lead armies to fight against the God of heaven. And the world will marvel and say, who is like the beast? I'm quoting from Revelation. 
because he will call fire down and he will do a lot of satanically uh, empowered miracles. Who is like that king? And then we just need a few chapters for Jesus to answer that question. And he will answer it with a resounding, um, I am the king. Every knee will bow to me, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we have grace and peace from this God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, three persons, one God, revealed in Jesus Christ. Omniscient, it means he knows all. Omnipresent, he's everywhere at once. Omnipotent, he's all-powerful and eternal. And now he's saying, grace, I, this omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, have extended to you kindness and therefore, you can have peace because that grace has nothing to do with you or your effort or your goodness. So before we get to the unfolding of how the whole world ends, know this, who I am in my strength and power and who you are as the object of my grace. Therefore, you can have peace as you uh, become aware of this revelation. And so now... A quick uh, shout out of praise to Jesus because uh, John is thinking about the, these three attributes. Jesus is a faithful witness unto death. He's the firstborn unto, uh, from the dead, and he's the king who conquers death. So John's thinking, wow, all for us, love demonstrated. And who was there at the cross who saw all of this happening? John himself was there. And so it moves him to praise the Lord. He says, praise to the one, and in the Greek, it's who keeps on loving us, who loves us continually, who freed us from our sins by shedding his precious blood. And John would know because he saw that blood drip down. John, with his very own eyes. And so now he's thinking about all of this, and he's just amazed at this love and this grace and the peace that was purchased by the shedding of his precious blood. I read of this uh, incident, a forest ranger or two, they were walking through uh, the charred remains of a section of a forest that was ravaged by wildfire. They came across a charred bird's nest, and in the nest, the carcass of the mother bird burned and to cinders, they moved the remains of the charred carcass with their foot a little bit, and to their surprise, out popped three or four little birds running and scattering in every direction. You could see the wings spread out. Maternal instinct knows how to save the day, what has to be done, and paternal love knows as well. Praise to the one who loves us, who frees us from our sins by the shedding of his precious blood. Ray Stedman wrote this. John here is dedicating the book in praise to him who loves us and in addition has freed us from our sins by his own blood. 
He breaks the shackles of evil habits in our lives. He sets us free from the dependencies that we have allowed to harass us, shackle us, and limit us. Ray continues to write, some of you here, I am sure, have struggled with drug dependency or alcohol dependency, and you know what a horrible grip they can have on your life. But here is one who frees us from our sins. We are all sinfully dependent people. We have all been shackled by evil of one sort or another, selfish ambition, selfish attitudes, hot tempers, lustful passions, sexual immorality, angry, self-centered talk. The list goes on and on. We are as much victims of evil as any alcoholic or drug addict may be, but here is the one who has freed us by the sacrifice of his own life. Now, just FYI, in the Greek, uh, some of your translations have, have freed us from our sins, and some of them have, have washed us from our sins. In the Greek, washed and freed have a difference of one letter. So some manuscripts have washed, some manuscripts have freed, and guess what? They both work. <laughs> he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And really neat thing, verse 6 that follows. He says, listen, and it's not all about you, is it? He says, and therefore he's made us a kingdom of priests. And, and so the Old Testament priest was just somebody who knew God's will and word and was uh, charged by God to help other people draw near to him, to leave darkness and, and their injuries and their problems and their, and their uh, worries and their cares and to come draw near to the God who loves them. That was the job of the Old Testament priest. The New Testament says you are a priest in the sense of knowing God and his will and his word and the same job to bring hurting people out of darkness into light, to, to help them, to draw near to God, to be near his heart of compassion for them. That's your job. So you know what? He's freed you, yes, by his precious blood. He's washed you, yes, by his precious blood and given you something to do, a response to that beautiful grace and love and freedom and cleansing is that now you are his. Priest just means mediator, the go-between guy. You know, you've received, and there's a host of people who haven't. Your job now is to help people draw near. A kingdom of priests, that's what we are. And then last, wrapping up with this wonderful shout-out. You know, I, I'm surprised John didn't put in there in the Greek, you know, spoiler alert, because, <laughs> because it is kind of the end of the story here. Suddenly, out of nowhere, he says, look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will Mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. And then the Lord speaking, I am 
the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, it, who was, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's talk about this as we wrap things up. The thesis statement for not only the book of Revelation, the second coming and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, not just the thesis statement for the words of this book, but the words of the 66 books that form the one Bible. He's coming. 550 times a direct reference to the second coming of Christ, as I told you last week, 2,500 indirect references to that coming, the entire theme, Jesus is coming. And as I quoted Tennyson's line, as I often do, I just love this line. It, it's inscribed on the walls of the Library of Congress. I've told you this many times, that one far-off divine event toward which all creation moves Every day, every minute, every hour, we are closer and closer to a predestined uh, interaction with the God who created everything. And so John just blurts out the summary sentence of the entire revelation. Uh, look, he's coming. And what is he saying by putting it in present tense? Like, look, there it is. Do you see it? He's saying, folks, are you imagining this? Are you thinking about it every day? It's going to happen. Are you thinking, have you ever looked up and said, hey, oh, that's just a seagull. Uh, <laughs> you, are you looking? Are you living? Are you longing for it? Are you imagining it? Are you embracing the reality of it? Not a like, oh, well, you know what the Bible says, someday. No, look now, today, while the preacher's preaching. The trump of God could go off and boom, the church goes. And I'm sorry to say there'd be one or two people still sitting here. There'll be lots to do. Don't worry. <laughs> we, we hope and pray that nobody be left behind in our church. But, you know, that's how it seems to, be, to go. And so he's saying, are you imagining it? See it, embrace it, long for it. But here's the word, live it. Live like he's coming at any moment, because guess what? He is. He is. I like what Jesus said the night he was betrayed. He sat at supper with the guys, and he said, don't be so worried and fearful. Trust in God. Trust in me, too. There's a place for you in heaven. I'm going there to prepare things for you. Now, reason with me. If you're the reason I'm going to prepare that place, then it makes sense I'd be coming back to get you so that you can be with me there in that place. That's a paraphrase of John 14, verses 1 and 2. You'll remember just trying to get this into our heads. Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. The guys, no doubt it doesn't say this, but because of the angel's remarks as the Lord ascended, you could imagine the look on the guys' faces, which prompted the angel's remarks. Men of Galilee, what are you staring at at Jesus like that? Don't you realize that this same Jesus will return in the same manner that you see him now ascending to glory in heaven? He will come back in the same way, the same Jesus is coming back. This is an idea that's just hard for us to understand, but we need to understand it and grasp it. 
And by the way, now he's saying, and, and in that moment, every eye shall see him. He's talking about at the end of the seven-year period when Christ returns with the church. He's not referencing the rapture here because Jesus said in Matthew 24, the rapture will come like a thief in the night. Nobody's expecting it. There are no signs. One, one person in bed, two people in bed, the husband goes, the wife stays if she's an unbeliever and vice versa. Two people in the field, one goes, one stays, but it's a surprise. We're not talking about every eye seeing that. We're talking about the second coming where he appears, as Jesus said himself, as lightning lights up the sky from east to west, he himself said, every eye shall see. And then it goes on to say, interesting, even those who pierced him. In other words, he's saying that those who actually crucified him will see him coming again in victory. Vindication. The guy, the unfortunate man who was in court that night when Jesus was testifying before the high priest and the high priest didn't like the answer and the man, the attendant, slapped Jesus in the face. And every eye shall see, even those who pierced the guy who said, lay down, buddy, and, and, and took the hand and pushed it down. He didn't have to push it down because the Son of Man laid down his life willingly. But those who, who hammered the nails, those who walked by the cross and said, hey, you, you saved everybody else in town. Why don't you save yourself? That guy who said those words will see. And you won't need a TV because it will be a spiritual and visible. People who have been deceased for years will see because they did the piercing. But you know what else is cool is those who also accepted Christ will marvel, enjoy, and love. So the thief on the cross who remained mocking, he will see. And the thief on the cross who repented right in the last 30 seconds. He just said, oh, wow, this is bad. I've made a big mistake here. <laughs> you know, the sun stopped shining. He got a clue. It's like, whoa, okay. Jesus, uh, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And the Lord said, this day you'll be in paradise with me. He'll see. Because every eye. Now, this is also not just a reference to those who literally pierced our Lord, but it's also a prophetic word out of Zechariah uh, chapter 13 and verse 6. Actually, it's in chapter 12. It says, I'll just read it. This is a reference to a prophecy in Zechariah, the 12th chapter, where we're told that when he appears, those who pierced him shall look upon him and shall mourn for him with great mourning. They shall ask him, what are these wounds in your hands? And he will say, those which I received in the house of my friends. So he's saying, those who pierced him will mourn. When, when he comes back and the Jewish nation realizes it was them, spiritually, figuratively speaking, that rejected their own Messiah. He's a Jew. His mother was a Jewess, that he came to his own people, and his own people didn't recognize him and turned him away. They will have a bit of mourning. Now, the Bible says in, in Romans chapter 11 that 
most of Israel through the tribulation will be awakened and become Christian. Not all, but a great, great awakening of the Jewish people. But they will mourn because they'll realize. And, and the proverb is, you know, where did you get those? Oh, in the, in the house of the Jews. My own people did this to me. And they'll mourn. And the word for mourn there, too, when it says the nations will mourn, it's a very nice word in the NIV. In the Greek, it's wail. So it's the, it says the nations who are shaking their fists at God, surrounding Israel, being sexually immoral, practicing magic arts, not repenting, following the beast, taking the mark. When he lights up the sky, they wail. They drop the weapons and they wail. And they should. What a far cry from grace and peace, from God who loves you and freed you from your sins by his own precious blood. Grace, favor, mercy, safety, peace. To that. What did it take to go from the misery of tribulation to the glory of God's grace and peace. A change of heart. A prayer. A surrender. Uh, I'm sorry, you're right. Save me. You remember when Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing now because he says, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Let me paraphrase that. He's saying, what would a man give to get out of hell and into heaven? It's a rhetorical question to make you think. The answer is, oh, anything. If, if, if it took climbing Mount Everest with my bare feet, I would try to do that. If, if it meant selling everything you have and living a life of poverty, I'd do that, of course, to escape the tribulation or to escape hell or escape being condemned and, I'm sorry, thrown into the lake of fire? Jesus said, what would a guy give to, to, to avoid that? And the answer is, whatever it would take. And Jesus says, you think? You, you would think that's Jesus' point, is this, that what separates them from us is nothing but a simple trusting of the heart. Not climbing Mount Everest, not selling everything you have, not living celibate or doing whatever you can imagine. It's just a simple trust to, to give our hearts to the Lord. Let me close with this beautiful kind of signature from the Lord. He just says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And what he's saying here is the Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. And so what he's saying is, uh, I'm where it all starts. Knowledge, wisdom, light, life, truth. It, it's all in me. It starts with me. And guess what? It ends with me as well. I'm the final word on wisdom and life and eternal eternity. I'm the final authority. In other words, I'm the A to Z. Now, with this prologue and greeting now wrapping up, I want you to catch what the point of all of this detail is. He's saying to us, 
before you look at chapters 6 through 19 and the 21 judgments that obliterate this earth and end life as we know it, before you take a look at advanced history, I want you to know about my grace and my love and about who I am, that I am everything. I'm the Lord. Find everything in me. I'm the supreme ruler. I have no limitations. I'm everywhere at once. I have all knowledge, wisdom, and power. I have preeminence in everything, in life, in death. I'm before. I'm during. I'm after. I'm past. I'm present. I'm future. I'm beginning. I'm middle. I'm end. I'm above. I'm beside. I'm underneath. There's no God before me, no God after me. I sustain all things by the power of my word. There's no power or wisdom or plan that can defeat me. I'm the A, I'm the B, I'm the C, I'm the D, I'm the E, I'm the F, I'm the G, I'm the H, I got this down. I didn't, (laughs) H, I'm the I, I'm the J, I'm the K, I'm the L, I am the NLP. I'm the Q, I'm your R, I'm the S, I'm the T, the U, the V, I'm the W, I'm the X, I'm the Y, I'm the Z. Did I leave anything out, people? That's what he's saying when he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I got it all. And now before you turn the page, folks, maybe you're not a words person, so I'm going to give John a little picture of what I look like now. That's next week. In case this description still doesn't get through to you and you're still a little anxious about chapter 6 through 19, then I just want to give you visual learners a snapshot of me because I don't look like the medieval artist renderings of a guy with scraggly hair, pale, gaunt, and kind of like lost in this world. He says, nice try, but we can do better than that. John, start writing. And so now, with the affirmation of how he feels about me and his strength and his power, that with the same determination and strength of power and will to bring judgment on the planet, the same determination to rescue and protect and save and lavish his love on me and you and his people. Get that. So that you can say with the psalmist, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. We have no need to be in fear. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and for this auto biographical revelation of your great power, your wonder, your awe. We bow in your presence. We yield our will to you. We believe these words and we take them to heart that we are secure in our God. Our God is in us. We are in Christ. Christ is in us and Christ is in God the Father. Therefore, We have grace and we have peace, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. We thank you for this great confidence. Help us to live every day in it. In Jesus' name, amen.